Hey everyone, ESG Energize is honored to be sponsored by our good friends at mCloud. Their solutions help companies maximize production, automate operations, and optimize predictive maintenance. Their emissions management solution is so relevant right now with the Inflation Reduction Act. Go check out mcloudcorp.com to learn more. Welcome to ESG Energized, where we discuss the latest developments in the environmental, social, and governance arena that are impacting the energy industry today. Here are your hosts, Delfina Govia. My name is Delfina Govia, and many of you know me as a partner at Veritas Total Solutions, an innovative management consulting firm where I lead the ESG practice alongside my ETRM colleagues. Hey, listeners. Before we get started, I'd like to ask if you would do me a favor. And when you're done listening to the podcast, answer a quick 10-second survey that you'll find in the show notes. I'd really appreciate it. Now I would like to ask you a question. What do you get when you take one of this nation's war heroes and infect him with the finance and investment bug? The answer, a fantastic podcast guest. Here we go. Timothy Kim, the CEO of IBV Energy, is joining us on the ESG Energize podcast today. Welcome, Timothy, to our podcast. Thank you, Delphine. Thank you very much. It's a privilege to uh, be a guest. So we are based here in Houston, Texas. Where do you sit in this world, Timothy? So about a year and a half ago, I moved uh, back to Washington, D.C. This is where I kind of got my start in the renewable energy uh, world, at least in the United States. Uh, And I moved here from Miami, where our company is still based. So uh, I'm probably the only person in the world that uh, insanely moved from Miami to D.C. instead of the other way around. So, Timothy, you and I have actually had conversations in the past, and I am absolutely certain that there is some sort of strategic uh, reason for having made that move other than just insanity. There there is, actually. Um, So, look, I I think uh, a lot of people uh, have tracked the energy world, not just renewable energy, um, can understand that policy, federal policies have played an outsized role in the last uh, last uh, this administration, the last administration as well. You know, IBV Energy Partners, um, we are a principal investor and developer of utility-scale solar and storage projects across the U.S. Uh, and we started in 2017, um, the same year that, um, you know, tariffs uh, by the Trump administration was placed on uh, solar panels. Um, you know, every single year, uh, more and more tariffs were placed and uh, we understood uh, very well that if you were not, uh, you know, close to the policymakers or, the, or, or understood uh, policy formation and uh, close to the heart of it, uh, then you were going to be at a disadvantage uh, in your long-term investment plans. So that, that's kind of what formed the drive, the impetus uh, for me to at least move back. And I'm proud to say we now have, I think five of us now are in Washington, D.C. with the rest kind of spread throughout um, uh, you know, Florida and, and the other parts of the of the state. So your IBV Energy is in the business of investing in utility scale solar and wind. Did I get that right? Yeah, we, we focus solely on solar and battery storage. Um, ah. Yes, uh, our our 
uh, we, our pipeline is about eight gigawatts across 20 states almost now. Uh, so we, we like to think we represent a very good cross section of the utility scale solar and storage industry. Uh, and our average project size is about 175 megawatts, uh, which every year that climbs up as system sizes also climb. Um, but uh, we have not done uh, wind, although I've done plenty of wind in my uh, uh, banking days. Um, but uh, we're, we're uh, solely focused on solar and storage at the moment. And what was your strategic, again, reasoning for just focusing on the solar? What was it that, that drew you to solar in particular? So a little bit of, that's a little bit tied to my past. Uh, you know, I began in this industry, in the renewable energy industry in 2007, um, working in uh, uh, infrastructure finance in Germany. That's where I got my start. Um, and uh, I, I had finance, uh, you know, then and then I came back to the U.S. to work at the U.S. Export-Import Bank, financed a series of wind, solar, methane gasification um, projects around the world. Um, I, I looked around in 2010, 2011, uh, and, and kind of, you know, thought to myself, where, where is the, if I have to focus on one technology, where do I want to become that expert in? And and the reasoning was, 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 uh, clear that it was going to be solar, and, and the and the reason for that is because of the technology uh, curve, the technology roadmap that solar rides against, uh, which, quite frankly, wind does not. In order, in, in other words, in order to make a wind turbine, uh, you know, the capacity of a wind turbine uh, greater from let's say three uh, megawatt to five megawatt turbine, it really is about just building a bigger turbine. That's that. That's all it's about, right? The efficiency, the efficiencies of, of of uh, you know, blades and and uh, uh, turbine, um, you know, ha- has barely you know, basically been um, you know invested out. But solar mm-hmm. was different. You know, in two thousand seven, the cost of solar was four dollars a watt. Uh, fast forward to two thousand and eighteen, and we saw it at about eighty five cents a watt, and we saw that climb down. Uh, every single year. Uh, and because the efficiency threshold of solar is just that much further out there that we haven't even tapped uh, the the, techno- the next generation of technology yet, uh, which is uh, Topcon and heterojunction cells, which uh, are slated to come out in 2026, to the, to 2025, 2026. Okay, so, stop right there. Yeah. I, need, I need you to help us uh, a little bit more because it... Most of my listeners are we're oil folk. Uh, we do have uh, quite a bit of oil folk that are that are excited and investing and working in the renewable space. But we still have a large listening group that are very much oil folk. You just used a couple of uh, terms associated with solar panels that I personally am not familiar with, and I'm certain that um, a lot of my listeners won't be either. So could you could could you elaborate just a little bit more? What is that? Mm-hmm those those technologies that we need to understand yeah so maybe i could put it to you like this um for for the oil and gas folks um so if a wind turbine represents a pipeline and you want to put more fluid uh, or gas or oil uh down that pipeline then one of the things you could do is just make the pipeline bigger right right um and just put more uh, pressure in there but how about if you don't need to make the pipeline bigger, but actually make it smaller and change the viscosity of the fluid? Yeah. So the first one is wind, right? You could just, you know, to, to have a, a more efficient 
turbine, you just have to make it bigger. Right. For the second example is solar. Um, you can make it smaller and denser if you just change the mechanics of what you're sending through there. Um, and that to me is much more interesting uh, and, and, you know, gives us an understanding that solar technology uh, is going to uh, exponentially grow over the coming decades, whereas wind turbine, the blades just have to get bigger and the turbines themselves have to get bigger. Um, so miniaturization to me is very interesting. Um, and I thought to myself, well, you know, I'm very interested in the physics of energy and I see growth in the solar uh, space because of uh, at least keeping the size uh, of the panel density, uh, if not reducing it. So you said uh, just a few seconds ago that we went from $4 a megawatt to $0.85 cents a megawatt in a pretty significantly significant amount of time. That was mm -hmm. pretty quick. Do we in this renewable space have a – are foreseeing, <coughs> excuse me, a particular cost – we we are um, so so just to clear uh, clarify here uh, we went from four dollars a watt which is basically um, you know the, the the minimum unit size of of what we talk about in the energy capacity world right so uh, that that's probably not as important as just the dollar figure itself so to clarify uh, the the cost per watt uh, back in 2007 was approximately $4. The watt part doesn't, you know, that's the minimum uh, energy capacity that we speak in, but that's not as important as the dollar figure. So we were looking at $4 a watt to build a solar farm in 2007 and fast forward to 2018, where it cost approximately 85 cents, depending on where you are in the U US, but an average. Uh, the while the price of solar uh, did go down dramatically, uh, we have seen an uptick in that price. To today, it's floating at about one dollars, uh, one dollar a watt, and okay. the reason is because of the volatility of the policies in both administrations. So, you know, I don't want to make this political. Be both administrations um, have implemented policies that have affected the price of solar, or what we call the levelized costs of solar electricity. Um, and some of these policies are still playing out right now, such as uh, seizure of modules at the port by Customs and Border uh, Protection. Okay. Um, and that is due to federal policies that prevent certain goods from China entering the United States. Um, however, uh, when you talk about the cost of solar, uh, the direct answer there is we will start seeing a stabilization of solar prices probably at the end of next year and moving forward uh, from then on because of the Inflation Reduction Act that was recently passed. Um, one of the interesting things of solar energy uh, that, that is highly dichotomous against, you know, let's say fossil fuel energy uh, is that fossil fuel relies on feedstock, right? So it, it's largely yeah. globally driven by, you know, the cost of crude oil, for, for instance, or, or uh, shale gas and the exploration thereof. Solar is not driven by feedstock because the sun is free, the wind is, you know, free for wind, uh, but is rather a commodities 
driven or materials, I should say, a materials driven energy play. So okay. uh, if there is a war on the other side of the world, let's say with Russia and Ukraine right now, solar is not effective or should not be. Um, however, we have seen policies play out in the last two administrations that has affected the material cost of solar. For instance, no polycrystalline from China, um, which produces, the country produces about 80% of the world's polycrystalline. Well, yep. there's no, you know, you don't need to be a genius to figure out what's going to happen to the cost of solar once you do that. Exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. So it's clear where, why you, you're, you focused your organization uh, investing in the, in the solar space. Are there, what are, what are the collaborations, if any, or conflicts, if any, are you seeing between solar or any renewable space and the oil and gas industry in general? Uh, so this is a very good question. And uh, I think a lot of listeners will be surprised that there is no conflict, actually, but there's actually collaboration, a great deal of it. You know, about three years ago, we at our company, IBV Energy Partners, made the decision to pivot our strategy from one of general development to that of targeted development, that is targeting decarbonization, and even more specifically, scope two emissions of heavy carbon companies, such as oil and gas companies. Okay. You know, fast forward today, we're working with fossil fuel companies, some of the largest ones of very household uh, names uh, across uh, the wholesale markets in the United States, PJM, MISO, SPP, to reduce their scope to emissions by two things, selling clean power to service their pipeline and terminal operations, and second, co-development of solar assets so they can also have an equity stake in the projects. Um What's really revealing here in the la is in the last 12 months, there has been a number of oil and gas companies that have bought out or acquired uh, renewable energy uh, companies, such as Repsol, for instance, acquired uh, a well-known developer called Hecate, a solar developer, another nationwide yep. developer, actually. Shell uh, acquired Savion and Silicon Ranch, uh, two very well-known developers, Total, acquired very recently Core Solar and Clearway, Enbridge acquired Tri-Global Energy, and the, the list kind of goes on and on and on, to be quite honest with you. Um, so we, we believe that this is uh, not an us versus them. You know, on both sides, renewable energy and oil and gas, we have a new generation of leaders, of managers. And uh, I do find that my colleagues on the other side are just as, if not more excited at the prospects of partnering with, re with renewable energy companies as we are with them. Um, you know, it not only provides not just scope to emission reduction benefits and improved public relations, and let's be honest, that that's, public relations is always a factor, yeah. but it's also a matter of uh, profit and loss, a financial statement analysis and solar, uh, you know, as I said, solar LCOE, levelized cost of electricity pricing. Solar is competitive, and although it has significantly increased in the past 24 months due to exogenous and policy implications, so has energy as a whole. So uh, we see uh, a, a deeper collaboration with oil and gas. As a matter of fact, um, you know, perhaps we could uh, you know, send you a link of three oil and gas articles, or, or excuse me, three articles that our company wrote 
to uh, to to put into the oil, energy, and uh, oil and gas uh, magazine, uh, and th- th- that was done, uh, you know, just just a few months ago to to delineate, uh, you know, what are the differences and what are the collaboration points between our two industries. So, if you would absolutely send me that, we will put them in the show notes for our listeners to be able to access at their leisure. We very much appreciate that. Um, sure. So. What do you what do you say is the biggest challenge right now that we are facing? You've alluded to the fact that we do have policy uh, questions that continue to come up. Is it around policy? Are those our biggest challenges, or are they technical? What do you think it is? So maybe I could make this a more macro uh, type of uh, response. Uh, certainly. There are technology and supply chain issues. Certainly, there are policy issues. But if we look at the macro level, then there are two main issues: one short term and one long term. And this affect, uh, yeah, this affects uh, both the renewable energy industry and the oil and gas industry. As a matter of fact, the short term uh, response to your question is energy security. Um, we are at the uh, we are at an inflection point. Uh, in, in the in where we want to uh, uh, extract energy from and how we want to do that. okay And, and we see this play out uh, in, in both administrations in the Trump administration and the Biden administration. you know what mix of our total energy mix do we want to be oil and gas to be uh, you know methane gasification or green hydro to be uh, solar and wind? So I think uh, over the next uh, three years, uh, this answer uh, will be resolved. Uh, I truly believe that because what we are going through in terms of supply chain shock in uh, you know, energy, as well as inflationary prices at the pump, uh, the, if there could be a silver lining at all, the silver lining is that forces us to actually sit down and reprioritize what, uh, what, what the, uh, the answer is to this type of question. Uh, so that's happening in D.C. right now. The okay. long-term answer is resiliency, uh, and we're talking about uh, making sure that our generating platforms, uh, making sure that our oil terminals, making sure that our pipelines, making sure that our solar and wind and grid, um, you know, platforms are resilient uh, and will uh, you know, will survive uh, a shock to the system, such as you know, a, a hurricane in Texas or a hurricane in Florida. Um, this is a priority for FERC, as a matter of fact, right now. So we have two competing, um, actually, I should not say competing, more, more complementary, but uh, we have two competing, uh, you know, so to speak, philosophies of where do we, uh, you know, apply resources at the very moment. And I think energy security will win out um, and then resiliency later. So that makes a lot of sense. And when you're talking resiliency, it's basically the infrastructure, right? Because mm-hmm. that's, that's where we've, we've seen consider, con, uh, continuous challenges and continues to be top of mind, especially as we, as we move into the winter months, right? Exactly. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you guys, uh, that EBV Energy Partners are operating 86 uh, gigawatts or eight gigawatts, I'm sorry, eight gigawatts uh, in 20 states. Is there a particular region 
that you find more opportunity in a particular state, a particular region? And if so, where is that? And then could you give us an example of a project that you have underway? Sure. Well, I wish we were 86 gigawatts and maybe, maybe oh, next sorry. year. <laughs> maybe next year. Uh, we, we'd have to head on approximately 76 uh, or 77 gigawatts. Right now, we're, we're about eight gigawatts. Uh, and we we are, you know, a, across almost 20 states. Uh, as a matter of fact, I would probably say about 70 percent of our of our capacity is in the middle of America, from North Dakota all the way down to Texas uh, and maybe two states to the left and two states to the right. Um, when we started, we, we asked ourselves, where should we, wh- what market should we first enter into? And the easy answer is, uh, or was, uh, California, right? California, North Carolina. Um, uh-huh. You know, the, the, the states had a, that, that, that were kind of exploding in, in um, uh, solar deployment, uh, right. as well as uh, other types of renewable energy. We went the opposite way. We, we decided to enter into Kentucky, a state that had zero uh, renewable energy generating platforms, nor uh, um, had any of its uh, utilities sign any contracts in the history of the state to procure clean energy from any renewable energy, uh, energy generating platform. Um, the reason why we decided uh, and, and continue to decide on entering into these um, states without renewable portfolio standards, or let's just call it what it is. I mean, red states, right? Yeah. Uh, and why today we are the largest developer of our kind in both Kentucky and Louisiana um, is simply because uh, of two reasons. One, yes, market. We see an aging um, uh, generating platform. Uh, in these two states with uh, fossil fuel uh, plants uh, retirements uh, over the next five, 10 years uh, taking place on a, uh, on a per capita uh, capacity basis more, that, that is more greater than many other states uh, in the U.S. But also we truly believe in our mission. Uh, and this might be something a little cheesy or corny, uh, say what you will of it, but nobody really gets into renewable energy thinking, gee, you know, I want to go into this volatile field, exciting field, but volatile nonetheless, uh, yeah. in order to do the same thing everybody else says, right? And just make a paycheck. We truly exactly. believe in our mission, right? Which is why three years ago we pivoted and we made a big bet in decarbonization and helping oil and gas companies to uh, offset their scope to emissions. And in the same vein, if you truly believe that you are here to serve a mission, to serve a purpose, to serve a good, don't do what everybody else is doing and go for the easy states. Do what everybody else is not doing and challenge yourselves and challenge each other. So today uh, we have uh, a number of projects in Louisiana and Kentucky. Uh, we have across the two states contracted uh, approximately 1.1 gigawatts of contracted assets plus another one gigawatt of uncontracted assets that we're developing. Um, in Kentucky, so for my, so let me stop you, Tim. Uh, when you're saying contracted versus not contracted, could you give give a little bit of an explanation mm-hmm. as to what you mean by that? Sure. So a contracted asset is a development asset like a solar storage or, or any other energy asset that has a revenue contract. So in other words, you have an agreement to sell power from this specific power plant 
to a local utility or to a power agency or a municipality or to what we call an off taker or to okay. a corporate for that matter. Yep. Um, and the reason I say this, uh, why, why I state the, uh, that we have contracted assets is because uh, we signed the very first renewable energy PPA power purchase agreement uh, in Kentucky, in the history of Kentucky. And we signed it with four parties, actually two parties, but um, it, it's a club deal. Um, Louisville Gas and Electric and Kentucky Utilities, which owns a large fleet of uh, coal-fired power plants. Uh, and they, did, they signed it in a club deal format, uh, in a reverse purchasing agreement format, okay. to sell the power to Toyota Motors and Dow Corning. Okay. So our power, a lot of it is going to be used by Toyota Motors in Kentucky, where they make uh, the RAV4 uh, for, for the nation. And how cool is that, right? I mean, Very. you see a lot of those yeah, SUVs on the road. Uh, and similarly with Dow Corning, it will go to manufacture or to, to, to power up their operations as well. Um, so we, we see it as a win-win, or, or in this case, uh, uh, you know, win-win-win-win, um, that uh, Louisville Gas and Electric and Kentucky Utilities saw the writing on the raw wall and said, you know, I have large power customers that really want renewable energy, clean energy, and resilient energy. Uh, and I want to keep them. And Toyota Motors and Dow Corning uh, made the excellent choice of working with LG&E and KU uh, to, uh, to, to realize their um, environmental, social, and governance goals while uh, procuring this clean energy. So it it's, it's really is uh, a very interesting project overall. Absolutely. <clears throat> I love the, the forward-thinking, um, collaborative story behind that, right? Like you said, yeah. win, win, win. So, Timothy, if you had to give the world one piece of advice or one warning to heed, what would it be? Well, uh, let me come at this from a, an energy perspective. Um, I think the world, especially Europe, um, but we are also going through an energy crisis of our own, uh, you know, somewhat of our own making as well, um, has finally realized that energy security is national security. Um, so the warning that I would state is do not underestimate the long-term needs of the people when it comes to demand for electricity, demand for energy. Because as we are seeing uh, in the European continent, and we will see even more in about three weeks when they go into winter here, the lack of planning and the lack of, uh, 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 and the, the dependency on a foreign nation uh, will mean ultimately uh, a quality of life that is downgraded from what you can expect uh, today. Uh, and I think that this is something that is not really talked about at the dinner table, uh, nor is it talked about enough in our uh, high school and uh, college classes. Energy security is national security. Hmm. So we need to be teaching these discussion, these concepts these technology discussions, we need to be teaching this not just within our engineering uh, curriculums, but we need to be teaching it 
quite heavily in our economic curriculums as well and in our business classes as well. I agree. I think as a matter of fact, I'll, I'll take it one step further. I think that energy uh, and, the, and the study of energy management, energy generation, energy security should be an interdisciplinary subject. Um, and we're seeing already colleges and graduate schools, uh, you know, carving out, uh, you know, its own academic divisions. Uh, but it's not to the extent that you could call it interdisciplinary at the moment. Uh, but it needs to be talked about, um, you know, uh, throughout our social chain. Well, I'm going to uh, send a shout out to the University of Texas at Austin uh, to yeah. to uh, take take note of this discussion. Uh, also, Texas A and M which is also up the road from us, take note of, of this discussion. Uh, I completely agree with, with that sentiment. So, Timothy, you started telling us a little bit more. I kind of like, um, would like to, to close out this discussion with knowing just a little bit more about you. You gave us a hint at the beginning of this podcast is what got you down this path, what got you interested. But uh, bring, bring that full circle for us. Right. So, boy, let me see here. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> I uh, this is my, I would say, third career. Um, I pivoted a couple of times in my life. Um, coming out of college, I graduated uh, out of NYU. And um, I, uh, I went to NYU on a, scholar, on a military scholarship, actually. And um, I was commissioned as a naval officer and ended up serving about six years in the U.S. Navy uh, from 1999 to 2005. Um, the first two years were very boring, <laughs> I have to say. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I had no idea what I was about to get myself into. Um, you know, once 2001 came around, 9-11, um, you know, there, there was obviously a, a large change in the military posture of the, of the United States. And uh, I volunteered with a land-based group, the Naval Coastal Warfare Group, uh, and we were deployed to um, the Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, so I soon found myself going from um, a shipboard system uh, to uh, carrying, uh, you know, uh, an assault rifle and um, oh being on the land team, right, uh, and then being part of the initial week of that invasion. Interestingly enough, uh, our co-founder, our company's co-founder, Robin Saez, is also a 10-year veteran of the U.S. Army, uh, where he was a um, battery field commander, an officer, uh, and he led troops in uh, Iraq. We we're on, obviously, two different uh, paths, uh, missions, uh, but we think we might have actually crossed paths in, in, a, in a forward operating base uh, right before the invasion. Wow. Um, but um, so I was uh, in, uh, in, an, uh, in that theater um, from the very beginning of the invasion till August. And then right after that was reassigned to go to Liberia uh, with um, the U.S. Military Observer Group, which is the, uh, the, the evolution of uh, U.S. Uh, Military Advisory Assistance Command in Vietnam. Um, and uh, I was dropped into that country with uh, about 12 other folks uh, and lived in Liberia in the middle of their civil war. Oh, my. Um, right. So the six years, uh, I didn't have a mission objective for my career, right? It was just to soak up everything and to kind of more or less keep alive uh, and to make sure that I got out uh, while also doing my duty. 
So very proud of that. Uh, I, I just don't simply, I simply don't think I would be the person I am today, nor have the ambitions that are, or, or motivations or skills I have today if it weren't for those uh, incredibly invaluable six years of service. Um, and that's the reason we also like to hire uh, military veterans uh, at IBV Energy Partners as well. Um, so after uh, Liberia, um, I left the, the service um, and I went to graduate school at Johns Hopkins University, studied international economics, uh, and then went to work in um, uh, banking in Germany, where I was uh, uh, banking uh, or financing uh, you know, a number of uh, projects from re renewable energy, traditional energy, and transmission projects with the power, water, and utilities team at a large corporate finance bank over there. Um, and then uh, that was very interesting because I had gone from the military to banking and I thought I had the right, made the right move, but this was 2007. So okay. people could understand what happened in 2008, <laughs> the great recession happened. Yeah. And I realized when I was out on my butt that maybe I had, <laughs> maybe, maybe Liberia wasn't bad after all. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe drinking sewage water wasn't so bad after all in the middle of the jungle. <laughs> so, oh, gosh. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, so came back to the United States and licked my wound. And uh, the power of connections uh, is really something else, right? Oh, Which yeah. Is why uh, I, I tell people, especially those that are starting out the career, make as many connections and make it meaningful. Um, so uh, through, through uh, connections, I found myself at the U.S. Export Import Bank, uh, where, uh, you know, at this time, the Obama administration wanted to uh, have a focus on climate change finance. And I was the only person at the bank that had ever financed renewable energy deals because Europe was five years ahead of the United States. And I, oh. you know done a lot of this so yeah. i was tasked right i was tasked by the leadership to you know to to found uh, the uh, the office of renewable energy finance uh with some other co-founders at the bank and we very quickly cornered uh the world solar market uh corn uh, did a little over 600 megawatts in india uh, you know a couple hundred megawatts in canada i mean back in those days doing 20 megawatt project was a very big deal that was a big project uh, yeah. You know, and the U.S. project, you know, U.S. market doing five, 10 megawatt project was a big deal even. Um, so that 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 is a very interesting time frame, because if uh, folks remember, uh, there was a, quite a bit of scandal that happened with the uh, with the Obama administration when it came I to remember. financing Solyndra. Right. Yep. We right? all remember. And so I got right. We all remember, especially me, since I got my work subpoenaed because I was part of that deal. <laughs> and so, oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, so I was, uh, you know, it, it was a very interesting time. And obviously, uh, you know, I, I don't want to go too much into it. But, um, you know, we got I got caught up in the maelstrom of the 2012 elections and the scandal that plagued it uh, on, the, you know, from that perspective. But luckily, uh, that passed uh, and I weathered the storm. Uh, and then I started really focusing on my career and went off to the private sector and became an executive in Two solar uh, renew or two actually renewable energy, not just solar, renewable energy investment companies, and um, um, and uh, you know, in 2016, I kind of looked around again, and um, you know, one one thing that startup founders, regardless of, of what industry you're in, and Delphi, you know, you you could uh, you know, I'm sure you could easily uh, understand this part and appreciate it, is that when you start something. Uh, your, your first immediate reaction is, I could do this better than everybody else. 
right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you have to have a little bit yeah. of arrogance and egotism you in do. you to say something, yeah, right? To start you something. You do. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. I have been um, very guilty of that myself. You, right, right. And, and to the benefit of... <laughs> And to the benefit of the public, that, that, that worked out well, right? You would hope, uh, you would hope. This podcast, right? <laughs> well, I think so. So, you know, arrogance and egotism is a good thing when you want to start uh, start something. Because naturally, if you think, I can't do this better, or I could do it just as good as, then you don't deserve to be starting anything, right? That's you true. have to think That's true. you could do it better, better yep. than everybody else. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I kind of looked around and I got bitten by that bug. And um, <laughs> uh, I look, I mean, now today it's not about I. Uh, it's not about me. It's about a we. We could do it better than everybody else. Um, and this is very, uh, you know, very, it's an important distinction to be made uh, because when you start something, it is about I, right? Everything yeah. is on your back. You are the CEO or what we jokingly refer to in the startup community as a chief everything officer. Yep. But very soon, if you do your job right, it's not about you at all. It's about everybody else except you. You're just a you know, coffee maker for all intents and purposes. If anything, you may even be getting in the way as a CEO. The, yeah, you <laughs> right. exist. As, you're a servant leader. You exist to serve the needs of the people exactly. around you that are actually getting the work done. Exactly. And I'm proud to say that we turned that corner about uh, uh, a year ago and um, very proud of the team that we have. Um, and um, we are climbing up the league tables and uh, more important, we are doing good. We are helping uh, companies again, on the, even on the opposite side of ours, realize their goals and to change somebody's thinking, you cannot put a hammer to their head or a gun to their head. You must engage in dialogue. Uh, and I've seen the best business leaders do this, not accuse, but engage yeah. and, and say, how can we all make a difference? How can we help you? Um, and this is what we are doing our best uh, at, at, at um, you, know, uh, you know, trying to move forward on. Well, that what, that's what makes you a perfect guest for this podcast, because I've said it before. I'll say it again. Our mission here is to educate, engage and energize people on these topics. And I'm, I would be remiss if I didn't thank you for your service to this country. And if I didn't thank you for your continued service to this space and your leadership in this space, and of course, your willingness to live in Washington, D.C. I, I think that <laughs> Liberia got you ready for living in Washington, yeah. D.C. <laughs> just, just slightly better, just slightly better quality of life, I would say. <laughs> Don't send me hate mail people from Washington, D.C. But um, Timothy, I, I am so appreciative of your what you have what you are doing in this space and for being on this show sharing your personal story and what IBV energy partners are doing can i close out by giving people the a website for them to go to what is what is your website that we can put in our show notes absolutely it is uh i as in india b as in boy v as in victor energy com ibvenergy.com fantastic once again timothy kim a sincere pleasure to have you with us thank you delphina real pleasure to be on 
Join us again next week on the ESG Energized Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.